This is Healthcare Strategies. This podcast was recorded remotely due to the coronavirus pandemic. As a result, the quality may be a little lower than our usual standards. We appreciate your patience as we practice social distancing. From all of us at Intelligent Healthcare Media, stay healthy, stay safe, and enjoy the latest episode of Healthcare Strategies. Hello and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Emily Sokol, Senior Researcher and Editor at Extelligent Healthcare Media. Today we are speaking with Dr. Daniel Durand, Chief Innovation Officer at LifeBridge Health, a $2.5 billion healthcare system based in Maryland, serving over 1 million patients. Dr. Durand is a physician executive with deep experience in health system administration, digital health, population health management, and value-based contracting. He oversees all of LifeBridge Health's projects, investments, and partnerships related to biomedical research, digital health, and value-based contracting. Dr. Durand previously served as the founding executive director of LifeBridge Health's clinically integrated network, which grew to include over 500 providers managing over 100,000 lives in value-based contracts. Dr. Durand trained at Johns Hopkins, where he held several leadership positions and served as the director of accountable care. Today, Dr. Durand will be focusing on LifeBridge Health's strategy for combating COVID-19, including vaccine distribution planning and technologies to assist in the fight. Welcome, Dr. Durand. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. So I was wondering if to start, you wouldn't mind talking to me a little bit about how your organization has begun to prepare to distribute and administer the COVID-19 vaccines. What were some of the anticipated challenges that you were planning for during this distribution process? Absolutely. Like a lot of organizations and like I would say the entire world of healthcare and a bit beyond, um, we are learning about these vaccines in real time. We are seeing them become approved. We're seeing the scientific research come out. And then the questions of when do you need the second dose and how you should go about doing that, all of this is evolving. And it's pretty unique in healthcare that we're forced to deal with such a rapidly evolving landscape. Typically, when a vaccine or a drug is created, there are several years of research involved. And so we have more data to make our decisions and our policies and our strategies and tactics on. And with COVID-19, it's just too important that we act rapidly. And so we're having to do business a little bit differently. And it's for those reasons um, that innovation, both within LifeBridge and I think more broadly, innovation departments and innovative individuals are kind of stepping forward and playing a bit more of a role because there is more of a nimbleness uh, necessary as we craft the response. So getting into what LifeBridge has done specifically We started the way a lot of health systems started. We knew there would be allotments available. All of this this was very late-breaking kind of news over November and December as the FDA reviewed the data from companies like Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca and the various partners of those organizations in creating those three vaccines. And as the data started looking good, the FDA has issued an emergency use authorization on two of them. And very quickly, those supplies of vaccines started to become available. 17 or 18 million vaccines have been produced and distributed, but only three or four million have been injected into somebody's arm, right? And so there's great consternation over that, and everybody wants it to move faster. But we have to remember we're only 60 days into a process that normally would take much more time. U.S. health systems are really trying to figure this out. 
And we started by trying to figure it out in our own employees and in the highest risk patients. And numerically, our own employees, in terms of the, the doses that we've been given, the majority of them were, were handed to us to vaccinate the healthcare workers so that folks would be able to rely upon hospitals functioning, right? That we wouldn't have too many healthcare workers that would get sick at the front lines and wouldn't be able to staff our ICUs, which could lead to really further instability. So that was one of the early decisions by the federal and local governments in terms of prioritization. And then it was up to the health systems to go from that sort of mandate writ large down to the order of, okay, well, when you have the first 2,000 doses thawed, who gets the first 2,000, right? So there was a lot of interest in bringing ethicists in and harnessing the ethics committees we already have to think through along with system leadership and human resources to really think through, okay, who should get vaccinated and when? And then part of that comes up against who's interested in being vaccinated. And we've really seen a wide range of interest. I mean, people that are saying, look, when can I get my vaccine? I'll wait for it. I'll wait outside for it in the cold to get the first one. And you know, no one's had to do that, but we've had people that have verbalized they'd be willing to do that, all the way to people who are frontline healthcare providers who just don't feel either you know fully sure of the data, or they may be part of a subgroup. They might be a pregnant woman. They might be someone with a certain type of immune condition. And based on their own assessment of the data and their conversations with their physician, they're not sure, even though they're in a high-risk exposure group, they're not sure they want to get it yet. And so we've seen that full range, as has everyone. And I think the upshot has been we've had a, a large number of doses made available. At LifeBridge, we're very proud that we've given a large number of doses already, several thousand. Last time I checked, if you looked across the state of Maryland, even though we have well below 10% market share, we had given well above 10% of the doses. But we are starting to get to the point where everybody in our health system who's interested has at least gotten their first shot. My wife, who's an ICU physician with LifeBridge, got vaccinated kind of in mid to late December. And I personally got vaccinated with the second wave of physicians and forward-facing staff around late December. At this point, everyone who is interested in being vaccinated in the entire health system has at least been able to make an appointment or gotten the first shot. And within a week or two, we'll have given that first shot to everybody. But we are seeing a fair number of people who are not sure. And so the next wave of this really is about folks that expect others to trust in the healthcare system have to be clear that they aren't just expecting others to do that, that they have personally put this chemical inside their body. Right. So Dr. Drain, you bring up a lot of a lot of good points. I'm wondering, you know, there are a lot of healthcare organizations who are in similar situations as you dealing with some of these challenges around general vaccine hesitancy, keeping track of people to make sure that they get the second dose at an appropriate time, and you know a general understanding that the moment you get vaccinated doesn't mean that you can walk around without a mask on and not social distance. You know there are still guidelines that should be followed until we reach that herd immunity point. Are there any specific? you know, strategies or innovations and technologies that you and LifeBridge have thought about to help sort of mitigate some of these challenges? Yeah, absolutely. I think every part of the process uh, has a stamp on it of sort of recently innovative technology. On the front end, which you might call the population engagement or education end, we are producing domestically and making use of other types of content, YouTube, et cetera, 
to really get the message out there about what the data says about this vaccine and to put it in a different reading levels and different languages and just you know give it a, a look of everybody's different communities so folks don't just see it as one kind of group of people saying go get this vaccine right that it's really coming from all the different sub communities and cultures of the patients that we care for so that's on the front end and, and the employees, really, because, again, we're starting with the employees. The other end of it is really what we might call the access funnel. And that's, OK, people, how do we reach out to them logistically and get them scheduled? So we've had a real preference initially as we got this going for relying on scheduled vaccine doses. So in other words, getting folks to book a specific appointment and come in at a specific time we've actually had a process where there's essentially no line and people are coming in. So we're sort of overcoming information failure using scheduling platforms. And if you went back two or three years, health systems, generally speaking, didn't have this kind of online booking capability. So we've been using those outbound call centers and online booking capabilities to bring people in in a very orderly fashion so we don't have a bunch of queue formation. One of the reasons that's been very important, just technically speaking with this vaccine, is related to the sort of instability it has at different temperatures. And you really have to know how much of this you're going to have on hand if you want to make the best use of it and not waste a single dose, then you need to thaw it out and prepare it in a very orderly fashion. So um, getting from a factory kind of operations perspective, understanding what we call the tack time of the assembly line and the process, you know, has led us put together a situation where we've essentially wasted nothing. And that ethically has been very important to us because it, as it remains a scarce resource, and it will for many months, unfortunately, we felt um, it was it was very important, even if it meant ramping up a little more slowly to make sure we got it right and didn't waste anything. Um, so that's been another big part of it. And then post-dose, we have what you might call ongoing education or adherence monitoring. We have a mobile phone app that folks can choose to engage with or not that further educates them about the vaccine, monitors them for side effects. And so as a result of this, we've had really great reporting of, uh, and it's been very low, honestly, but we've, we've been able to see the side effects that are out there because there will be when you vaccinate thousands. Um, we've been able to get engaged on them and help triage those patients and record it and then follow them closely. Um, so side effect reporting, ongoing education, and certainly reminders that you are not immune, you know, um, you are not known to be or proven to be uh, immune from a bad outcome of COVID until two or three weeks after you've had the second dose. Now, like a lot of things about this, there may be evidence that renders that statement untrue in a few weeks, but that is the current understanding. We, all, we are also not able to tell people they're absolutely immune, right? You are, you are much less likely to have symptomatic disease and have almost no chance of having a bad outcome, like a death or hospitalization, if you get both doses of the vaccine. However, it's possible that you might still be infectable and might be sort of an asymptomatic spreader. I do think that these companies are obviously very engaged in gathering the additional data points they need to answer those questions. I expect those the answers to those questions will probably change over the next weeks to months. And our whole approach to this will probably change. So as we design the process and, and the content in these digital modules, we've left ourselves um, with a lot of flexibility by making them as modular as possible so that when one new piece of information comes in and, and renders an old piece of information incorrect or no longer correct, however you want to view it philosophically, we can sort of swap that out but not change the whole approach. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's really forward thinking on on your end, especially as you were saying, 
you know, information is changing on a daily basis. What does the process look like for developing these technologies like the mobile app or the online booking and making sure that they're adaptable? Can you dive a little bit more into that, particularly for other organizations who might be either struggling to have adaptable technologies that are helping or don't even know where to begin in implementing solutions like this? Yeah, so our approach at LifeBridge um, has been, as a health system, this is going back several years, we really try to think about what our core business is and what our core capabilities are. And we have near universal alignments, um, at this point I would say universal amongst our leadership team, that we are not a shop that is gonna primarily develop apps for the phone, example, or other areas, that we're gonna partner with people that know how to keep those current for the various different cell phone operating systems and how to incorporate the latest things that are known to be effective from other industries based on consumer A-B testing, et cetera. But what we're gonna focus on is the medical content and the trust, trusted relationship we have as providers of the patients and really focus on implementing them and make sure that there's uptake in a way that makes sense. And so one of the best ways of being nimble is having a partner that can code for these things very quickly and make the necessarily necessary changes. So your organization is really focusing on the medical, so the sort of understanding the science, the understanding of what patients are struggling with, the behavioral economics and behavioral change management aspects. That's what I think and what we believe providers need to focus on. So we're, we're sort of um, freed of a lot of the heavy technical stuff. And that gives you a lot of nimbleness once you sort of realize where you're going to focus. Another thing that helps with nimbleness is, like I mentioned, as you build something, to build it in pieces and realize that some of these pieces are going to be more susceptible to change than others, right? So general things like a side effect profile, right? That is probably usable throughout not just this vaccine, but you could reuse it for the flu vaccine every year. The general list of side effects with a nice unstructured other category for in there is, is kind of a, low, a no regrets thing that's probably not going to need to change much. But um, things like the distance between the, the second dose, or even honestly, uh, crafting your language in such a way so that you don't talk in a general sense about the second dose, so that if they tell us in a few weeks that they don't want folks to get a second dose for six more months, we can quickly make that change, right? That's the kind of forward thinking you need to have. As a group of medical experts, you need to be aware of the parts of the protocol that might change and then build your content with your technical provider in such a way that it is malleable it's hard to describe as a general approach, but it's generally that thing. Focus at what you know you're good at and then build in a modular fashion that's informed by your beliefs around what might change and what won't. And it sounds like these technologies are going to be something that are useful beyond the COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccine distribution as well. Like you had you know, talked about the, the flu vaccine. Do you see these technologies being used? The pandemic is sort of handled and under caps and we hit that threshold of herd immunity. Yeah. The, there's been so much that's happened over the last year that we'll look back on and say, wow, this pandemic has really been a catalyst for a lot of positive changes in healthcare. And that's not to be the first time that a tragic human event led to such a thing. If you look at rapid advancements in surgery and anesthesia, et cetera, the biggest catalyzers for those historically in the late 1900s and early, um, uh, sorry, late, late uh, 1800s and early 1900s were usually wars, unfortunately, and sometimes pandemic. And, and it's a little bit of a foreign concept to us because we haven't had a major conflict that's been broad enough you know, to totally transform medicine. There were certainly some advancements in robotic surgery and uh, 
blood loss, hemostasis, and trauma surgery as a result of the Afghanistan wars of the last two decades. But generally speaking, things have been driven by kind of peacetime investment. But now we're seeing a different dynamic, which is how do human beings behave and what is their innovation tolerance when they really are faced with a tough situation? So things like telehealth have been embraced in a way they've never been embraced before, and medicine will never be the same. This vaccine, I'll tell you, it's been sort of not widely talked about but it's an incredibly elegant way to vaccinate human beings. And, and this is totally separate from digital, but the idea of putting the genetic code itself in someone so that their body produces the proteins that you're trying to vaccinate against, it, it basically short circuits all these things we've had to do outside the body that have additional risk associated with them around making proteins in sort of non-human context and then injecting those proteins in the body. This mRNA vaccine, let's say there is a variant, right? Well, they can just take the mRNA and change the sequence and very quickly prove that it still works in, in the event that a mutation does go around this. More likely than not, you know, that's going to have to be proven, but that's the theory. And we've been sitting on mRNA vaccine technology for many years, but there wasn't much of a market or an impetus for these big pharmaceutical companies to invest and for the FDA to really be aggressive about approving. But you change the dynamics in a time of a pandemic, and now we're going to have really uh, fostered in this whole new innovative area of mRNA vaccines and maybe mRNA therapeutics in general. So you're going to see stuff for, I think, years to decades, all kinds of great things for humanity that are going to come out of this crisis because we had the courage to innovate because of the crisis. Well, it's good to hear that there's at least some silver lining coming out of this. <laughs> the last question that I have for you, Dr. Duran, is what advice you would give to other healthcare organizations who might be grappling with how to leverage technology in order to support vaccine distribution and make vaccine distribution as efficient and effective as possible? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. I think you have to start off with the sort of issues around ethics and equitable distribution and allocation, but not get too lost in that, frankly, because very quickly there will be enough to vaccinate all healthcare workers. It's more of an issue, in my view, with the general population um, where we're really just going to have enough for a few percent in the coming you know, months, but it will hopefully improve over the spring. But very quickly, healthcare systems will very likely, if they aren't already, be in a situation where everybody who, who trusts the vaccine will have gotten the first dose. Um, so keeping track of, of those folks and building scalable processes that are both nimble and have enough forethought in them to try out different ideas, but not get stuck on the existing sort of construct around how this should work. So what we've discovered is that you can build the process, but you really, you want to be constantly trying different approaches to that process at different locations, and then quickly diffusing the best practices as to what works across your health system. So everybody in their individual hospital might develop their first, you know, vaccine point along some similar principles, but a loss also allow for some local variation, both to give that sense of ownership within that domain but give yourself the chance to experiment with some different, you know, you're not experimenting with different vaccine formulations, you're experimenting with different ways of getting, of, de of delivering the vaccine. And you will start to realize what works and what doesn't. Some of that will be common across locations. Some of it will be variable by location. If you're not really considering it, keeping track of it, carefully measuring things like your wait time, your throughput, et cetera, you know, then you're at risk for not optimizing it. But it really is a classic operations research type question that we're engaged in, which is how we most effectively get this vaccine in everybody's arm, you know, as, as soon as possible. Right. Well, Dr. Duran, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us and for all of the, the important work that 
LifeBridge is doing and, and the advice that you gave to other healthcare organizations. Well, thank you, Emily. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, what partnerships and technologies are promoting safe and effective vaccine distribution at your organization? Let us know at Pharma News Intel. And thanks for listening. This has been an Intelligent Healthcare Media production. 